and welcome to the Famous Five podcast, in which we share with you a Famous Five adventure written by Enid Blyton. Today's book is Five Have a Mystery to Solve. If you haven't read the book and you don't want to be subject to spoilers, please turn on and come back when you've read it. everybody welcome to episode 20 of the famous five podcast hello and hi hi and hello and we are joined by and i say it every time our favorite guest host (laughs) charlie rebel smith hello charlie hi charlie uh hello there favorite and onlyest yeah (laughs) well that makes you extra special because you're our favorite and our only guest host I like to think original and best. Yes. <laughs> and it would be a shame if you were the only guest host, but not our favourite. <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> that would be quite awkward. Here's our second favourite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would. It would. It would not make me feel that great. No, <laughs> to be you're honest, definitely our favourite. It'd certainly put a well, downer on much. the rest of the episode. Uh, <laughs> you just trying to think. Well, who was their favourite then? If I was the second. <laughs> Well, it's it's uh, always a joy to be back, so thank you very much. Uh, just before we kick off with the book, listeners, don't make me beg. We have got our roundup episode coming after we've done the last book, and I'm asking you even nicely, send us an email of your favourite characters, because I know you've got them, and I know you love The Famous Five for a reason, because you've listened to 20 podcasts about it. So let <laughs> us know. Don't make me start making up people <laughs> and reasons why they love the famous five, because I will. <laughs> and five have a mystery. Oh, h- h- hi, Jen. How are oh, you? Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Uh, yeah, good. Um, we're, this is going out at the beginning of November. October's been ridiculously busy. Alice turned one and we went to Disneyland Paris. So, yeah, incredibly busy. But I'm ready to solve a mystery, are you? I am ready. Also, as you know, October, the month of Halloween, there's lots of, mm. you know, busyness with ghosts and things. So there's a lot for everyone to do in October, in Halloween month. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to sort of like um, uh, break reality of the podcast, but we're recording the day before uh, Halloween and I'm in America and there is nothing that is as fun as American Halloween it is so over the top and extravagant. It is it's just an amazing time to be in America. Um, it's, I'm in Chicago as well, which is, it feels like the Midwest is the most Halloween-y of all the states, you know, of all the like sections of America. And I'm having an absolute ball, just carving pumpkins, just uh, making little like silhouettes to go in windows and um, preparing every preparing everything for trick or treat get costumes together britain really needs to embrace halloween more Agreed. because it is such a such a fun uh time of the year i absolutely yeah, love it same oh i would love to be there for for halloween should have taken me in your suitcase Charlie, that is so funny because as soon as Jen mentioned ghosts, I really thought you were going to go, not wanting to plug or anything, but <laughs> because your other podcast is called The yeah, Spooktator um, and it is about ghosts and 
It is about it's about um, ghosts. It's about ghosts, the paranormal, but it's taken from um, perspective of non-believers. I think is probably uh, yeah. fair to say. Um, and yeah, it's the Spooktator. The the latest episode which went out was an uh, interview with Stephen Volk, who wrote Ghost Watch, which is a almost legendary BBC. Uh, one-off drama which Brilliant. terrified the entire nation and is one of the greatest uh, pieces of television I've ever seen. Pipes, Mr. Pipes. Pipes. Oh my god, I still think about pipes. Terrifying. So, give the Spooktator a listen. I haven't listened to that interview yet, but I will be because I do listen to the Spooktator. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. But we're here to talk about five. Have a mystery oh, to solve. Oh, lovely. So I'm going to read from the back of my book and it says the famous five are stranded on Whispering Island, which with its old castle, wailing cliffs and hidden coves, the island is rumoured to have secrets of its own, which the five are keen to investigate. Soon they are making startling discoveries. What treasures will they find in the mysterious passageways and who is trying to stop them? Well, that sounds a lot more exciting than the actual story. (laughs) I mean, one of the things, I don't want the, I don't want to jump too ahead of ourselves, but one of the things which the five distinctly do not do in this book is solve a mystery. Yeah, a bit misleading, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, it's probably the only book where they don't solve a mystery. So the <laughs> fact that it was called <laughs> Five Have a Mystery to Solve, all they do is go to an island and things happen that they witness and then they leave the island <laughs> and presumably report it to the police. But yeah, this was, this was, I, I yeah, I enjoyed this book, but it's a weird one mm. in, a, um, in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, that was my, mostly my thoughts too. Um, I, instead of reading you the back of my book, I've got quite an interesting Ooh. edition here. This is the night books edition, and this is a 1975 one first edition was 1971 and as well as the back there's like a little I don't know a little intro in the front which is on italics which is you know the most mysterious way to present your font so I'll read you this (laughs) Uh, five of a mystery to solve the famous five are Julian Dick George Anne and Timmy the dog adventures are out says Julian at the beginning of this story but the famous five are invited to spend their holiday in a cottage overlooking the sea, and a mystery presents itself to them, a mystery no one can understand. This is the five's twentieth. Does anybody have the special note from Enid Blyton in their books? I don't think I do. I don't have a note at the front and the back. Ah. Because mine's an older one, I've got, um, I've got another Do You Belong to the Famous Five Club? Ad, but I don't have a note. Is this the one where she's asking, um, is Whispering Island real? Yeah. Yes. Well, then I do have that. Oh, I do have that. Sorry. Oh. I do. Do you know what? I was looking for like a secret note in my book. I do have the special note <laughs> after the contents page. I don't mean Enid Blyton wrote on a post-it note and put it in your book. Yeah, like a handwritten <laughs> 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 no, no. I know you'll be reading this in the future when you're doing a podcast, even though podcasts haven't been invented yet. Yeah, podcasts haven't invented. Also, you're going to be in your 30s and, when you do it. And <laughs> I know it's nearly Halloween, so I'm a ghost. <laughs> I mean, that would be terrifying if you did find that in the boat. 
the note from her and it's so weird. I don't know. Is the note fiction also? I, I, mm, I don't know. I don't. I... Was she having a funny well, the... turn when she wrote this note? Possibly. The special note I found really interesting because she's talking about like Whispering Island mm. is real. But in the book, I think it's quite obvious that she's talking that it's set, even though it's not specifically says that it's set in St. Moore's in Cornwall. Um, like the biggest clue for me was like talking about how it's the second biggest harbour right. in the world after oh, Sydney Harbour. And every, anybody who grows up in Cornwall is told over and over and over again, Falmouth Harbour is the second largest natural harbour in the world after Sydney. Uh, so it feels like it's there, but there is no island in Falmouth Harbour at all. Um, but the description of where she's talking about absolutely sounds like uh, St. Moore's, which is on the Falmouth Harbour. So this note sounds like it's kind of a lie. <laughs> but, but well, also she said no, that it's not true. could still be found there. But A, isn't he a work of fiction? And B, if she knew that I was going to be reading this when I was 34, <laughs> like, how is Lucas still alive? <laughs> What is he like? Because he was really old. He was quite yeah. old in the book, wasn't he? It's like, oh yeah, his, he can still be found there. He's 180 <laughs> years old now. And is he still shirtless? Because I was a little bit... I, did, I didn't love that well, as a book detail. There was a, there was something about like the details about like how tanned and shirtless he was. That yeah, was I like, know. It was like it got strangely sensual for a while. Enid's getting it. a bit of a crush here on this on this character. <laughs> well, shall we dive in at the beginning? Let's. Yes. And we can get to Lucas and his tan later on. <laughs> so, in chapter one, the nicest word in the English language is holidays. And Dick, Julian and Anne appear to have moved nearer to Kieran as George is just a bike ride away. Their mother wants them to be in for tea as Mrs. Layman is coming and wants to see them. And I've written in brackets, Anne has had another birthday. But we're still not quite sure how old she is. Just still, it's, it's like, I think it's like the Simpsons. They can have birthdays, but they just are perpetually the age that There's an awful lot about sausages mm. in this chapter. There is an absurd amount about sausages in this chapter. There's an absurd amount of um, Timmy eating throughout this. There is, isn't there? He's the hungry character. He is always the hungry character. Jen and I use the phrase the hungry character and it comes from, are you familiar with the film Nanny McPhee? I am not, but my I, I should be because my nephews grew up absolutely loving it and used to go ah. used to go around and when we went for walks they would pick up sticks and pretend to be Nanny McPhee like casting oh, spells bless. and things. Yeah, um, we ended up watching the behind the scenes documentary of it, and there's quite a lot of children in it. And you know how sort of adult actors come on and say, well, my character is deeply troubled, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> this little lad who can't have been more than seven went, I play the hungry character. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and well, you need, you need to find your character motivation. <laughs> yeah. What, it, uh, <laughs> being so hungry. For years and years, we've had the hungry character, haven't we, uh -huh. Jen? Yeah. One of those things that just drop into your vernacular. Well, that's Timmy, but I suppose it's also all of the famous five as well, because they have eight meals a day, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> At least. And then they're still hungry. Yeah. Well, they need to get in their I 
20,000 calories a day. Yeah. When they actually, I mean, I know this is a, a bit to come in this book, but they actually have to try surviving on mints, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Something like that later on in the book, because they cannot go for half an hour without eating. It's true. And chapter one is just sausages all the way. Just it is, It's just a chapter which is solely about them eating. And also the beginning of the running theme of this book, where Anne gets called a mouse. Yeah, Anne said Dick. You're such a quiet little mouse. It's nice to hear you singing so loudly. I am not a quiet little mouse, said Anne, surprised and rather hurt. Whatever makes you say that? You just wait. You may get a surprise one day. And then literally sort of seven lines down, (laughs) she starts shouting. (laughs) It's like we didn't have to wait very long for that. She just wanted to act on it in the moment. Yeah, she was like, I will show show him. Yes, immediately. Can't wait for long enough. Yes, so they, uh, the children go and buy things from the bakers for tea. And just another word about Anne is she's top of her form and captain of games. I was surprised by that. presented this little girl who is incapable of doing certain things, but... She's clearly not. She's clearly incredibly, incredibly bright yeah. and yeah. captain of games. The, uh, the overriding theme of this book is that there is more to Anne than the, you thought there was. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, she's like captain of the, the, like the sports team and top of the form. It's like, yeah, still waters run deep <laughs> as far as she is concerned. There is, there is more to know than you think. That's right. And as Jen pointed out earlier, adventures are out. Mm. In chapter two, George and Timmy are waiting for them. The children are very jolly here, and I don't like they've been like that for a while. You know, at the start of the books where they're always quite sort of jolly and friendly. Because they've been a bit nasty to each other, the whole Anne with a ponytail and all that sort of thing. Oh gosh, Anne with a ponytail. So I'm glad they're jolly. It's because they ate so many sausages. (laughs) <laughs> it's nice they're actually having fun and injected a bit of a joy into it. I did appreciate yeah. it. Doris bans Timmy from the kitchen and she tells us lots of tales of greedy dogs, which I thought you might enjoy, Jen. <laughs> yes, definitely. They go for a walk and have a massive lunch and then a huge tea with Mrs. Lehman, who asks them if they will go and stay in a lonely little house on the hill with her grandson Wilfred and a woman who cooks and cleans as she, Mrs. Lehman, has to go and see an ill cousin. We're really, really scraping the bottom of the barrel (laughs) with getting the children away from the adults. The motivation in the story is so weak (laughs) that will you go and stay with this child who I've deserted in a house on, on a hill? Would you like to go and stay with him? who you've never met before, and it just feels like, ugh, Enid, I know you want to keep making money out of these books, but you have run (laughs) out of ideas. They um, agree to go and look at the house, but Julian already has his doubts about Wilfred. In chapter three, their mother isn't going with them because she's busy at the village hall. I assumed she'd be planning her next cruise, but there you go. That's what she's (laughs) doing at the village hall. They head off to the cottage and look out over the sea. Suddenly they hear four and they realise it's a golf course. Dick thinks he'd be excellent at golf. (laughs) Apropos of nothing. (laughs) 
They find the aptly named Hill Cottage. No one answers the door, so they just walk in. It's very old, and as they look round, Wilfred arrived and shouted at them to clear off. He wanted to be alone with his friends. And he pulled out a snake. William insists, uh, Wilfred insists, he has plenty of friends. And I just wanted to read the fact that he says, um, that I've plenty of friends, I tell you, shouted Wilfred, stuffing the snake back into his pocket. I'll hit you if you don't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, that's not, that's not really the way to do it, Wilfred. If somebody doesn't believe you, hitting them is not going to make them believe you. <laughs> Using his whistle, he summons a hare, rabbit, magpie. Timmy growls at them and Wilfred gets angry, so angry that he goes to hit Timmy, who puts his head in the boy's lap and calms him immediately. George is furious. No, Wilfred calls him wonderful and then runs away, leaving Timmy sad and the children baffled. And I was also baffled. <laughs> yeah, this whole thing with the... F- with the, like the magic flute or something like that. Yeah, it's a pipe. It makes it? no sense whatsoever that it can just charm every wild animal and they will mm-hmm. just come to him. It is it's like it's like Disney princess power to have yeah. like oh. every creature will just come and like land on your shoulders and fix your hair and <laughs> I mean that is it that is what happens later on his magpie it's, doing his hair for him it's a truly supernatural power that yeah. to be able to do this is yeah yeah it's utter nonsense and also we find out later this isn't actually his house that he can't go home because his sister's poorly yeah he's so just he's staying been with there those on... animals what a week yes yeah and somehow this i was waiting like chapter after chapter to have an explanation for what this flute was where it came from nothing nothing at all it is just a magic flute which charms every creature in the world i guess but yeah even people yeah you would have thought that that thing would be utterly priceless because it is just this unbelievable um instrument so yeah this was this was I think is one of the strangest things that's ever been a fa- in a famous five book was um, the magic flute which charms every creature on earth. <laughs> <laughs> in chapter four, as Dick says, anyone who loves animals, as he does, must be all right. Could not agree more. <laughs> also agree. Um, Anne has a wonderful moment early in this chapter where she... Uh, I'm not sure what I've decided this power is, but where she kind of has, I don't know, like psychic witchy vibes and feels Mm. the, you know, like the vibes and power and memories of a house. But she goes back into the cottage after all the Wilfred and it says, um, Anne was delighted with the cottage. It must be very, very old, she thought. It stands dreaming here all day long, full of memories of the people who have lived here and loved it and how they must all have loved this view. Miles and miles of heather, great stretches of sea and the biggest highest widest sky i've ever seen it's a happy place even the clouds seem happy they're scurrying along so white against the blue psychic witchy anne is my favorite anne we've had this from anne a few times now haven't we where she yeah, just it's a real power where she just sort <laughs> of goes 
Yeah, she just goes into a place and she like kind of absorbs its history and has yes. an understanding of the of the building itself. And yeah, because she gets, always has like an emotional connection to it as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really Incredible. quite. It's it's quite an exciting thing to read in the book because it's like almost she has this kind of like I, I guess like a psychic tie to the environment and it's like. What a strange, what a strange characteristic to have of a, like one of your regular characters. <laughs> yeah, just this ten-year-old mm. girl who has like some psychic connection to Who's just like, buildings. Yeah, it's just like emotionally invested in them, and I love it. I think it's terrific. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> As Anne is organising, Julian comes to her and says, "Dear old Anne, what should we do without you when we go off on our own?" We know that's never going to happen. No, because... They're they already do? in their 20s. Oh, yeah, they're in their 20s. <laughs> oh, goodness. Julian meets Mrs. Lehman, and they talk about the harbour, and he tells her they'll collect some things so they can stay and that Wilfred will tow the line. Mrs. Lehman said Wilfred's sister has measles, so he can't go home. She leaves, and they make a list of everything they'll need. Julian, Dick, George and Timmy go, leaving Anne to set up the house. Wilfred makes her jump and drops the water. She tells him off and that Timmy won't be his friend. And so he helps her. But Anne is not keen on him. In chapter five, Wilfred offers to show Anne his beetles, but she declines. Then she has a sort of animal-based meltdown. (laughs) (laughs) She does, doesn't she? Eventually, he calls a rabbit. And when Anne touches it, it runs away. Wilfred says he shan't tell his animal secret. And Anne calls him rude. And he says he likes being rude. And then he says he's going to make Timmy his dog. (gasps) How dare he? Awful thing to say about someone's dog. Yeah. That really upset me. It's it's like an... This is what turned me off of him so much. that It was like, oh, I don't like him. I did come to like him at the end of the book. But it was like, that is... That's like an unforgivable curse of... um, It's like... No, you never say that about someone else's dog. I will make them mine. It's awful. Yeah, no, that's that is so awful. That is awful. Wilfred is horrible to Anne, and she cracks. She throws a bucket of water at him just as Julian arrives back. That girl said, "Wilfred, half choking, shaking the water <laughs> off himself. That bad, wicked girl. She's like a tiger. She sprang at me and threw the water all over me. I won't let her stay in my cottage." The boy was so angry, so wet, so taken aback that Julian had to laugh. He roared in delight and clapped Anne on the back. The mouse has turned into a tiger. Well, you said you might one day, Anne, and you haven't lost much time. Let me see if you've grown claws. So there's tiger part two. I love the ferocious Anne. We've had glimpses (laughs) of her in the past, haven't we? Yes. I think she's like threatened to like, Smash somebody's radio to bits or something. <laughs> oh yeah! <laughs> People playing their radios loudly in public and ruining it for everyone else. Yes, yeah. it's when they went to Billy Cock Hill. Yeah, I love it, the fact that it almost implies she might be a little bit unhinged. <laughs> yes, that yeah, we know she is. Yeah, that perhaps she's got so sick of having to do everybody's washing up and cleaning that she's actually like just like. Put this all inside of herself and it just, her frustrations just burst out occasionally. And I like to think that that's what, <laughs> what throwing the water over uh, Wilfred was all about. 
Mm. It's just, I'm sick of being everybody's, well, everybody's mouse. Mm. Yeah. But Anne apologises, and so does Wilfred, and then he says her nose is like a baby rabbit's, a bit waffly, which I think was a compliment. I also think this was a compliment. Oh, let's sure. I'd be very pleased if someone said to me, you have a nose like a baby rabbit, very waffly. I'd be like, A, waffly is a great word, B, yes, thank you. Jen? Yes. You have a nose like a baby rabbit, very <laughs> waffly. Oh my gosh, do you really think so? And waffly yeah, is I a do. great word. Oh, I'm so happy right now. <laughs> is it really waffly? <laughs> I do, but did you have to throw that bucket of water over me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you weren't complimenting me enough and I was desperate. I only wanted you to see my beetles. <laughs> I like beetles. I love insects. Let's move on. In chapter six, I've got nowhere to go. In chapter six, Anne is a little thrilled about her secret tiger behaviour. And Wilfred seems much nicer than before because he's terrified. They, Or he needed something to get him in line. They settle into the cottage and George asks about the island in the harbour. What's it called? She asked Wilfred, but he didn't know. He did know, however, that there was a strange story about it, of course. It belonged to a lonely old man, he said. He lived in the big house in the very middle of the wood. The island was given to his family by a king, James II, I think. The, this old man was the very, very last one of his family. People kept wanting to buy his island, and he had some kind of watchman to keep people from landing on it. These watchmen were pretty fierce. They had guns. So we're bringing... A bit of history and a bit of violence in. Always good. Brilliant. And we meet Lucas, another old man with a tale to tell. Whaling Island, or Whispering Island, is what it's called, but mostly Keep Away Island was <laughs> owned by a rich old man scared of losing his money. He built a castle deep in the woods. One day his castle was stormed and everyone was killed, but no one found his treasure. A couple went to live there and kept away sightseers with guns. But now the place is not lived in except some employees of a great nephew to frighten off visitors. The island belongs to the birds and the beasts. I um, would like to comment on the strange romanticism of Lucas and <laughs> his descriptions of what he looks like and Enid Blyton's outrageous compliment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we first meet him. Afternoon, young sir, said the groundsman, turning towards them. His face was as brown as a well-ripened nut, and his arms and shoulders were even browner. He wore no shirt or vest, and his dark, deep-set eyes twinkled as he took in the five children and the dog. A little bit later on, when he starts telling his story, Do go on, Lucas, said Wilfred, touching the man's bare, warm arm. <laughs> Why is this written like this? Uh, and there's one more at the end of the chapter. When he's saying goodbye to them. Thank you for telling us the story, said Anne, and the old countryman smiled down at her, his eyes wrinkling and his brown hand patting her cheek. I'll be off to my hedging and ditching again, he said, and I'll feel the sun warm on my bare back. <laughs> it's so weirdly okay. erotic, isn't it? It's like, it's like it is. It calm is. down, Enid. <laughs> <laughs> It's a like, shirt on that old it's man. It's like she just had this, like, for absolutely no reason at all, she has this uh, topless, tanned, I don't know if it's tanned or it's, like, non-white, but she's just, 
the way that she just describes him as being just this sort of like topless worker in front of this it feels <laughs> it feels inappropriate for a children's book it does feel inappropriate that's what it is when i was reading this chapter i just i felt uncomfortable <laughs> at all the descriptions of lucas because in themselves i mean it's fine but in the context of a children's book i don't want to hear about this man's bare warm arms yes like, just <laughs> keep it give it to yourself enid no it was definitely it was certainly a standout moment of just it like, was what is going on here <laughs> This is one of the strangest ones. And the strangeness continues as the children walk on the golf course and Timmy fetches several golf balls. A rabbit runs from Timmy and jumps into Wilfred's arms. Wilfred is amazing with animals and Timmy finds more golf balls. Julian takes them to to a pro who gives them orange aid and biscuits for Timmy. He mentions Whispering Island and calls it Mystery Island. So that's four names for it now. (laughs) It's too many names. (laughs) <laughs> the more the better and it said the folks had gone there and never come back because of treasure <gasps> treasure he thinks treasure <laughs> he thinks it's silly but he knows two men who came from London and they were never seen again probably drowned and the police got involved but the keeper said nobody had arrived what a mystery <laughs> <laughs> do you know I really love this book it's so bizarre <laughs> They go for a walk, talk about the island and the treasure, and how they don't want to be shot. <laughs> <laughs> this is fair enough, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, okay, that seems fine. Wilfred said he might hire a boat and roll round the island to see if you can spot animals. Julian says you will not, and they go home for lunch. In chapter 8, to George's horror, Timmy responds to Wilfred's whistle, and so she calls him back, and Wilfred whistles again, and Timmy turns. But George grabs hold of him and tries to punch Wilfred at the same time, but Julian stops him. George holds tight to Timmy and is furious with Wilfred. In the kitchen, Dick becomes official tin opener, so that Anne doesn't cut herself, but Anne calls him hand-handed, and Dick pretends to be offended and then breaks a glass. Very dramatic. (laughs) But I don't remember them being very ham-handed. Like, they've scaled walls and done all sorts of things and nobody's had any accidents. This whole chapter felt very um, filler. This was just like, get that word count up because nothing is relevant that's going on here. (laughs) Um, no, a magpie joins them for lunch and Wilfred talks to it. And Wilfred wondered if there'd be badgers on the island as he's never been close to a badger. Anne asks Wilfred to take out his pipe to summon up some animals, but his pipe is lost. Only George is pleased and Anne is cross with George for being pleased. Wilfred goes to look for his pipe and Dick wonders if George might have found it and kept it for a joke. Anne hopes not and they decide to have a nap in the sunshine. (laughs) I mean, them all having the nap in the sunshine just made me think of how much this book is a product of the time it was written. Because I just thought, sunburn, put some sunscreen on. This is so bad for you. Even even just falling asleep under the like the bright sun once is like a skin cancer uh, danger. Don't do it. Everybody, put sunscreen yeah. on and get in the shade. <laughs> Get in the shade. Yeah, because especially for children as well. Especially like, for children. Get a bad burn. Yeah. So yeah, falling asleep under the sun 
is not no don't do it <laughs> no i i agree it's just you very passionate about the subject <laughs> yeah it's just my fury about it get under a tree you can enjoy that you can enjoy the warmth of a sun of like a sunny day get under a tree and sleep in the shade that's fine do not fall asleep under the full sun no. <laughs> it's making me quite angry even thinking about it <laughs> right, quick move on <laughs> it's it's chapter nine quick he's getting very angry he's gonna throw some water over somebody <laughs> the children wake up and realize that wilfred has not come back so they decide to go for a bathe george asks how much to rent a boat for four children and a dog and julian says they can have it for a week and he'll take the money in the morning but the boy let them have the boat and to choose from there was starfish splasho adventure seagull or rockaby I mean, when you start listing boat names, you're, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're grasping, aren't you? Also, I would have chosen Rockaby. I would Not have gone for Rockaby as well. I would have gone for Rockaby or Starfish, possibly. What? Splasho, surely. <laughs> Splasho, no. Yes! Here's the thing. It's like in, Rockaby sounds nice. In the, um, in the versions which you read, how much... I don't know if you remember how much the like the rentals were for the boats. Uh, oh, mine actually pound, is right here on this page. Five bob an hour, said the boy, or ten bob a day, or a pound for a week. Ah, that's interesting because my one, it just stuck out with me that obviously I was reading like a more modern version of it because it said it has it all in pounds yeah. and it goes up to 15 pounds a week. Yeah. And I was thinking, Whoa. oh God, that would be... Possibly thousands of pounds, I think. <laughs> three yeah. three pounds an hour and six pounds a day, 15 pounds a week. And Julian's yeah. like, yeah, I'll fix it. I'll sort it. Because yeah, he's seems... 40 and he has a job as a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'd be yeah. scared to choose the boat Rockaby in case I fell asleep and it was sunny and Charlie shouted at me. <laughs> oh that's true how dare you fall asleep in the sun that's why I'm going with Splasho because I would definitely stay awake Rockaby just sounds mm. like a boat for calm seas I don't know sounds too treacherous for potentially falling asleep in the sunshine don't do it <laughs> don't do it <laughs> this is gonna this is gonna be my new campaign <laughs> against falling it's asleep in the sunshine it's gonna be a set of adverts and you see somebody napping and it's Charlie leaps out from a tree and goes wake up you're in the sun <laughs> don't do <laughs> it get in the shade they choose adventure and out they go to sea the tide sweeps them towards Whispering Island and they try and row against it, but it's no good. So they land on the island and they can hear the trees whispering. Anne doesn't like it. And even though they know there's men with guns, they decide to explore. And they think they won't get shot because they're children. <laughs> I mean, it's worked for them this far, but... Yeah, thus far, yeah. As they explore... Yeah the island they see the old castle and two men going down the steps looking very fierce they hear them say they heard a noise and head off in the other direction julian says the men look like foreigners not gamekeepers because as we know jen gamekeepers is it no was that housekeeper i can't remember in the welsh book oh, oh yes yeah. I remember that, caretaker. That, um... did he look welsh was it yeah Oh no! It's because I think it's because he had like a um, an English mm. accent, so therefore you know he couldn't be like a housekeeper or something. 
I think that my version of the book didn't have the foreigner line. It might have been oh. taken out in a more modern edition because because it's not a nice thing to no, say. No, no. Mine had it in, though, and mine's the 90s. This version which I have is the one which... It's like the kind of cartoonish uh, yeah. version. Oh, that is quite the modern. Very new ones. Quite, yeah. un- quite unpleasant looking, I think. Um, uh, yes, I think my one might have been ultra modern books. Because mine is from the 90s and it does say foreign. And mine is 1975 yeah. and it says the same. Those men looked like foreigners. They certainly weren't gamekeepers. And as they reach the cove, they realise that their boat has gone. In chapter 10, Dick offers to try and swim to the mainland, but it's too far. They decide to snoop around to see if there's another boat. Timmy doesn't like the island. He smells danger. Anne suggests lighting a fire as a signal. They've got no food. George has chocolate and peppermints, and Dick has barley sugars, so it's okay. Suddenly, they hear a gunshot, and Timmy isn't there, so George is frantic. But they find him, and he's fine, and he's got a whole half a ham in his mouth. Timmy has found a shed full of food, which is lucky. And it turns out he has been shot at. His tail is bleeding, but he was okay and proud of his ham. <laughs> As you would be. Throughout this this chapter and throughout this whole section of this book, the children fail to respond to the amount of danger which <laughs> yeah. they're actually in. <laughs> and everybody is just... Everybody's just too laid back about it. And also, if a dog brought you ham which it carried in its mouth, would (laughs) you want to eat that? They haven't eaten in at least an hour and a half at this point. (laughs) Yeah, give it a bit of a wash, it'd be fine. I'm the kind of person who is like, I think that generally people are a bit too overconscious of hygiene and bacteria i think it's actually quite good that we're exposed to it and things like that but even still don't eat something which <laughs> a dog has brought to you if in its mouth your dog then you know they're germs and also we're forgetting very importantly Anne doesn't believe in dogs oh that's true, <laughs> that's so true. She'd be the fine their weird cousin has brought it <laughs> yes yeah, her strange fairy cousin has The children wonder why this island is guarded. It's certainly not for the wildlife. And they walk quietly through the woods until they see a strange figure. Was it a ghost? No, it was a statue and the wood is full of them. Absolutely loved that. As just like an image, like while you're reading, this like forest filled with statues. I was like, oh, this is where the book is getting good. (laughs) And this is where it gets exciting. Unfortunately, that was the highlight and the... Everything kind of went downhill afterwards, but I just yeah. love that as sort of like as sort of like a, a like a visual image for readers. I just found that just incredibly gothic and spooky. Mm. They in chapter eleven they see lots of boxes packed with sawdust. Obviously, the statues are works of art, and they're being sent away to somewhere they would fetch a lot of money. They think the men they saw are packing up valuable things from the castle. Suddenly. They're thirsty, so they go on the hunt for water and they find a well. Unfortunately, the bucket falls off and so Dick shins down the rope in order to get it. Julian and George gradually pull Dick back up. When he was in the well, he saw something peculiar, something that looked awfully like a little door, and so he goes down again. And when he returns, he said it's definitely a door bolted from this side. A door in the side of a well, very cunning and mysterious and unguessable. And so Dick goes down to try to open it. 
In chapter 12, Dick manages to open the door. He shines his torch onto a face, a gold face, a golden statue with precious jewels. He shouts to the others to pull him up and he tells them what he saw and they each take a turn to go down the well and have a look. <laughs> this is like two chapters of... <laughs> I mean, this could have been covered in maybe two pages. Up and down the well. It slows down so much, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just... Go down, go up, down, and up. Suddenly, Timmy runs off, but he was wagging his tail. And there is Wilfred. He'd worked out that the five had got stuck on the island. Anne was so happy she gave him a hug. They tell him they found the treasure. And then in a terrifying moment, Timmy chokes on the ball. And if it wasn't for Wilfred saving him, Timmy would probably be dead. So George thanks him and says, Timmy belongs to both of them now. I just found it really quite... um... Uh, sinister and disturbing the whole choking <laughs> uh, yeah. part of it because I don't think we've ever actually had one of the five actually be like close to death <laughs> and that happening and perhaps it's just because I'm such a dog lover I just found it like so awful and so scary because I do want worry about dogs choking so often oh, no. so but, with my dog, I just look at him, it's like, slow down, eating, chew properly. Um, <laughs> Is this another one of your um, PSAs where you leap out at dogs and say, chew your food? This is going to be my other campaign, and it's going to be aimed towards dogs to make them chew their food properly. <laughs> it's very valuable. There are a lot of dogs who could benefit from that message. Yeah, they should do. My dog, definitely. In chapter 13... In a bizarre turn of events, Wilfred has brought food and plates and spoons and food for Timmy called Wago Meat. Yummy. But he didn't bring a tin opener, but Dick has one on his knife because, as we know, Dick is the official tin opener. Mm. Yeah, this is weird that it was established in an earlier <laughs> chapter that he opens tins. <laughs> I mean, what a weird like piece of foreshadowing <laughs> that you would have. Uh, instead of going back in Wilfred's boat, they decide to stay overnight on the island and have a snoop around. And Julian tells Wilfred he's not to go for a walk. It's not very well explained, but I think they then all fall asleep. And when they wake up, Wilfred's gone, and so they ask Timmy to be a sniffer dog. But then they hear Wilfred yell, let me go, so they all hide by climbing trees. In chapter 14, Timmy hides in a bush and the children in the trees. Wilfred says to the men he's alone and an animal lover and uses the baby hedgehog in his pocket as proof. The men let him go, but Wilfred gets lost in the woods. He could hear strange noises wailing, the wailing cliffs. Wilfred watches over the cliff and sees four men disappear into the cliff, so it must be a cave. He watches them carry out boxes and saw a small boat on the horizon. Wilfred sets off again and is grabbed, but it's the five playing a trick on him. Wilfred tells them what he's just seen at the cliffs, so they decide to eat and then explore that evening. <clears throat> In chapter 15, they make a plan to get into the caves, and they guess what's really happening. Well, I think it may be more than that, said Julian. It might even be a central clearing ground for a great gang of high-class thieves who would hide valuable stolen goods there till it was safe to sell them. However, that's only guessing. I think it's somebody's discovered the underground chamber, full of that rich old man's treasures, and is taking them out bit by bit, said Dick. Anyway, whatever it is, 
it's awfully exciting to think we know so much. But they don't. They <laughs> don't know anything. They've just said they don't know. They've both had well, two completely up. different guesses. They have no reason to even suspect that a crime is going on. That this whole thing could just be legitimate. That whoever owns this castle is just selling yeah. off his They're just goods removal men. For, you know, for whatever reason. So they're just removing these and things. And there has to be a boat, because how else are they getting them off the island? Yeah, because how are you getting them off of the island? So of course there is going to have to be um, something like that happening. And you're going to have to wrap up these treasures in uh, such a way. So <laughs> I think that this is like... It could potentially be the only book where there is no crime actually. That would be brilliant if it was at the end it was like, (laughs) no, they were just moving. No, these were just really snoopy children who just gave some removal men a bad time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're almost too excited to eat. They head to the Wailing Cliffs and go down them, reaching the place where Wilfred saw the men. Julian goes into the cliff tunnel. He returns and tells them all to be quiet and careful. And George says to Timmy, you're to keep close by me, she whispered, and you're not to make a sound. This is an adventure, Timmy, a big adventure, and you're in it as much as any of us. Come along. As if Timmy needs to be told what an adventure is. Mm. (laughs) Timmy is fully aware of it by now. (laughs) In chapter 16, they walk towards the cliff tunnel realising they're probably heading towards the castle. The tunnel is very echoey. All the children are very excited except for Timmy, not enjoying the gloomy and peculiar walk. They appear to have been walking through the castle dungeons. Not very nice and a bit graphic for the Famous Five. So earlier on when we were a bit um, erotic, now we get a bit sort of gruesome with the taking the prisoners out to be drowned Mm. oh yes yeah i was quite surprised by that that even just references to uh murder but especially sort of like it feels like it's kind of like torture murder kind of yeah Yeah. not not good um yeah surprising fortunately the mood is lifted by when timmy growls at a toad and thinks that toad is a hundred years old (laughs) <clears throat> and I double checked, and toads live to about thirteen. Do oh, they really okay. live that long? Apparently <laughs> so. Yeah, it was a, a cursory Google, but yes. <laughs> but just then, they reached the treasure trove, and <laughs> I've written another one. Aren't they sick of troves? Isn't this the third <laughs> treasure trove in a row? Um. Also, do you think when he's about seventy, Julian becomes a Jeremiah Boogle type, telling anyone who'll listen about the wonderful <laughs> treasure? <laughs> But he's also bitter yeah. because he has none of it. And no one yeah. believes him either. No one yeah. really believes any of his crazy oh, stories. Oh, that's just Juli- crazy Julian. Yes. <laughs> Julian Boogle. Yeah. Um, important question, is he going to wear a shirt when he's doing it? <laughs> <laughs> Optional. Optional. In chapter 17. Oh. <clears throat> In chapter 17... I've just written golden statues. I think I became fed up with this by now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, of course. So there's lots of golden statues. And Anne has been going on in the book about this golden bed. And I didn't mention it in any of my previous notes because so often in these books, things get mentioned and they never get mentioned again. And I thought it was going to be one of those. However, she sees and gets on the golden bed and the canopy collapses onto her. (laughs) 
thinking I should say the canopy, not the canopy. That's completely different. <laughs> the canopy collapses onto her and dust goes everywhere because not all of the bed was gold, Anne. Obviously, it's going to have a mattress. It seems so strange that Anne has this like weird dream that she wants to <laughs> sleep on her. <laughs> A golden bed. A golden bed in the first place sounds like the kind of thing, you know, when they kind of like break open the houses of dictators and it was like they will have yes. everything made out of gold. It's like, yeah, that would, you would absolutely have a golden bed in the, the house of a dictator. And I like to think that that is what Anne kind of wants to be. <laughs> she wants to live that sort of life. Because now she's tasted power and she yeah. doesn't want to stop. Well, she's a tiger now, so yeah, yeah. nothing's going to hold her back. On golden yes. <laughs> and Julian makes a further guess about the treasure. Well, I don't know exactly why that hasn't, this hasn't been used before. He's talking about the cliff passage, said Julian. Though I could make a guess. Did you notice that great heap of fallen rocks near the entrance to the cliff passage? I should think that part of the cliff fell at one time and hid the passage completely, blocked it up. Then maybe a storm came and the sea shifted some of the rocks and lo and behold, there was the secret passage open again. Again, we're just doing a lot of making things up. Mm. But suddenly, the door opens and the children hide. A man called Emilio comes in goes over to the statue of a boy whose eyes gleamed with emeralds. Well, boy, said the man, you're going <laughs> out into the world. How you'll like that after being in the dark so long? Don't glare at me like that or I'll box your ears. <laughs> oh, Apparently, the golden boy went what on glaring, for the man gave his head a sharp smack. W what? It, what? <laughs> A grown man has just boxed the ears of a golden the, statue. I think Ina's having a bit of a turn now when she's writing. <laughs> I, I think this is like a, this is one of the classic examples of there being too much book for the story. That she's just <laughs> yeah. putting anything in now just to fill up those pages. And the children have been discovered, so they're locked in by the men. But Julian tells them to relax, and Anne realises why too, because of the iron door in the side of the well. In chapter 18, Brilliant. they shove a large chest up against the wall and shove open the little door. Julian goes first, Wilfred too, then Anne, who gets pulled up. And considering she's <laughs> yes. like top at games, she's just like, nah, pull me up, I'm a dictator now. <laughs> this is, this is I don't one of those climb ropes. Which like, annoyed dictator now. <laughs> That's this week's t-shirt. I'm gonna ride in my golden bucket up to the top of the world. But this is the thing which which annoyed me is that like the ability to climb a rope is not really about strength, like physical strength anyway, it's about lightness of body. And so it's all completely in proportion to um to your you know, your strength is in proportion to your weight. So basically, uh, anybody is capable of uh, climbing a rope. Um, I'm suddenly just realised that I'm reliving my PE experiences <laughs> uh, here. But she should just be, she should be as able as any of the, uh, especially of the boys, to be able to climb a rope, just as capable, because she's already of a light frame. So she doesn't need to be patronised by them saying, we'll haul you up. There's just a little gripe which I had. She's not being patronised. <laughs> she's saying, I refuse to climb. <laughs> I have a golden, I am the tiger with the golden yeah. bed. 
and I shall not. You must raise me through this well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then Dick looks for George, but she's not there. A small stifled whine came from somewhere. Dick frowned. George, where are you? For goodness sake, book up and come out from where you're hiding. Those men might come back at any time. Don't play the fool. A dark, curly head poked out from behind a large box near the door, and George spoke in a very fierce voice. You know Timmy can't hang on to a rope. He'd fall and be drowned. I think you're all horrid to forget that he can't climb, and staying here with him, you go on up the well. Certainly not, said Dick at once. I shall stay here with you. I suppose it's no use asking you to let me stay with Timmy while you climb up. Not in the slightest use. He's my dog. I'm jolly well sticking by him, said George. He'd never desert me, I'm sure of that. Dick knew George only too well when she was in one of her determined moods. Nothing, absolutely nothing, would make her change her mind. Nothing would make her change her mind about not letting her dog drown. This was not very (laughs) famous fivey of the famous five. To forget Timmy. Why nobody thought about it earlier? Because usually they're actually really conscious about... Because there many, many times where Timmy has to be, be brought either up or down a vertical tunnel <laughs> and they find a way around it. But this time they just don't even bother. Yeah, you would have thought they would, you would have thought by now they would have got some system in place. Where it's Shove like, him in the bucket. We have to, yeah, we have, to, we have to up and descend these kind of tunnels all of the time. So this is the way we do it with Timmy. And as Timmy is practically he can speak full English then <laughs> then you would just be able to explain it to him it's it's very strange that, that it just happens at this point well had he been able to go up the next lot of drama would not have happened because Dick goes to the door to tell Julian they're not coming the main door opens George hides but tells Tim to attack the man was just bringing them a light Timmy leaps and the man hits his head on the chest. George and Timmy make a run for it and as, Ti- as Dick is about to climb the well rope when he hears the other man and throws a table at him. <laughs> like literally one man gets knocked out. I still, I still believe that these are just uh, people who are completely legitimately going to collect uh, the, you know the the treasures from this castle, and yeah, they are just—they're just, deliver- not doing anything illegal. They just want to <laughs> have a nice, easy job on this island, and these children are making it so difficult <laughs> and, and knocking them unconscious yeah. as well. In chapter nineteen, which is the final chapter, so strange that it just stops. George and Timmy head down the tunnel in the cliffs, and George doesn't know what the moon is, and Timmy. And Timmy does. <laughs> yeah, but it does let us have prettiest bit of writing though that's ever been in one of the famous five books, where where you you kind of like zoom into Timmy's head, and it says, "Oh, it's that lantern that somebody puts in the sky every so often." And I just thought that was just so poetically beautiful. I thought that oh, well done, in Blighton. I think that's lovely. Us getting this. This kind of dog's understanding of the universe. I thought it was really cute. That, yeah, that is. It is sweet. It says, um, he knew that lantern, all right. It was the one that somebody hu- sometimes hung in the sky and that George called the moon. Didn't she know? Apparently no. not. <laughs> yeah. Apparently she's failed to recognise the moon. <laughs> she gets a bit sentimental about the moon as well. Because after that it says, 
George soon did know, of course, and cried out in delight. Oh, it's the moon, of course, dear old moon. (laughs) (laughs) The children reunite and they find somewhere to go and sleep. Anne can't sleep. She's too worried, even with Timmy there. Anne and Timmy hear voices as she goes to investigate. She sees the men trying to set Wilfred's boat adrift and she's furious. Off she runs with Timmy, shouting at the men and threatening them with Timmy, who bites both of them, and they run. The others wake up and see Anne the tiger scaring away the men. And they do as the tiger Hmm. says and head home. And then the book becomes rather sentient because Julian uh, says (laughs) he'll be glad of the peace once the police have gone. And the book says, well, you'll soon have it, Julian. That little cottage is waiting for you all with its glorious views over the harbour and whispering island. You'll have quite a bit of excitement tomorrow, of course, when the police take you back to the island in their boat and you show them the old well, the vast treasure chamber, the secret passage and all the rest. You'll be there when all the men are rounded up. You'll watch them chugging off prisoners in the police boat, amazed that the famous five should have defeated them. What an adventure, and what a relief when all the excitement is over and you lie peacefully on the hillside, not in the sunshine, with the little cottage just behind you. So essentially, <laughs> that's the end. Yeah, this was, I was certain reading this that Ina Blyton intended this to be the last book in the series because she almost yeah. comes along to speak to the viewer of uh, the viewer oh, the yeah. reader at the end of it and says like uh thanks for reading my books we've had a nice adventure so bye so it felt like that that was her like doing like a you know almost like signing it at the end and saying a thank you to her fans but obviously not because she went on and did one more but it, fe- it right, felt like that that was the case it reading says, it Julian is lying back looking at the April sky, glad that their adventure ended so well. Dick is looking down at the whispering island set in the bright blue harbour. Anne is half asleep, quiet little Anne who can turn into a tiger if she has to. And George, of course, is close to Timmy, her arm round his neck. Very happy indeed. Goodbye, Five. It was fun sharing in your grand adventure. That's a, that would be a perfect way to end it and say goodbye. Yeah, it is. It's just like, yeah. And she like specifically says, we'll leave them here. So it is like she is saying, this is this is them. They've finished like their last adventure. Let's leave them in peace. Let's, you know, it, it felt like... The, and also it would be like book 20. It's like a nice way of, you know, number to round the, the series up on uh, generally. So it certainly felt like Ian Blyton was like putting a big full stop on the end of the full, the whole series there. Is there anything... We need to say more about Five Have a Mystery to Solve. Um, what well, it ends incredibly abruptly, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of, of a summary of, oh, and by the way, police came. Yeah, because like, there's those books where it just suddenly ends. Like the chapter's just like, oh, and we solved it, okay, bye. But this one was like, we haven't solved it, but here's just a paragraph run through of what happened after. Yeah, we haven't even got the police yet. Yeah, it was... No, it was very strange, and especially because I was reading it as an e-book, obviously it's not like when you have it as a paperback or something, you know how much oh, is yeah. left, but it was like that thing where you you like flip to the next page, and it's like, <laughs> oh, it's ended, <laughs> it stopped, I wasn't aware of I've that. I've got a book called The Famous Five, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know by Norman Wright, and I was, I was flicking through it the other day uh, oh, in preparation okay. for our final episode. And there's a bit that's called How Enid Blyton Wrote Her Stories. 
And the bit that I thought was pertinent was she never planned them out before starting, but worked completely from her mind's eye. She would sit down with her typewriter on her knees, then shut her eyes and let her imagination work. It's almost as if I am looking out of a window or a private cinema screen inside my head and see my characters there, and what I see, I write down. So there you go. That kind of makes uh, sense why I some think... things get mentioned and some things never come to fruition. Or She's definitely had this habit of introducing characters early on who you think are going to be significant, mm. but then are never mentioned Again, like in this one, we had um, uh, Sexy Lucas was uh, <laughs> one of them. And there was also, there was like like a really, really brief moment with Anne in the cottage where she has an interaction with the housekeeper, never mentioned again, is of absolutely no significance whatsoever. Um, and what was, what was unusual about this book and why there is actually no mystery which they actually solved is because most of the time it turns out that it was somebody who you met earlier on in the story turns out to be the culprit at the end. Mm. This time it was nobody. They weren't solving any mystery. They were just investigating things which were happening already and they weren't, they weren't doing anything to solve a, a mystery. And they just rumbled a bunch of... Um, castle renovators at the end <laughs> yeah it was very yeah very strange it was a, it was a strange story I, there was parts of it which I really liked but as an overall package then it was you You can understand now that Enid Blyton is sick of writing these books mm. and <laughs> even though even though they're making her lots of money that she you know she's out of ideas at this point yeah where we talk about the TV versions. Now, the 1970s version doesn't exist because they couldn't get the rights. They were still being held by the Children's Film Foundation and they made a version in 1964, but I can't even find a clip online to tell you about it. I found some screenshots and that's about it. Um, And I didn't have time to see if I could hunt out a DVD. So that remains a mystery. But the 90s version is actually okay it's one episode so it's pretty fast paced but it's shot like one of those weird trippy 70s horror films where it's all a little bit too (laughs) light and shot from below and there's lots of sort of light through the trees it's very odd but it's also it's surprisingly faithful to the book Mm. as well yeah that almost everything that happens in the book and that they managed to compress that down into 20-something minutes is really quite impressive. Um, it kind of shows you that not a lot wow. happens in the book. <laughs> yeah, that's also true, yes. But <laughs> this book is mostly filler. Yeah, it is. So that's all I've got to say about the TV versions, actually. So, yeah, The other thing I would say about the TV versions, the reason why I think it has such a um, strange look to it yeah. is that they do... I think that they like applied a filter to the lens. Mm. So what you do, it was all filmed during the day, but they applied a filter to make it look like night. But it never looks quite. It never looks quite real. It's a, It's it's done especially common when it's something where you're filming with children because there are all kinds of laws yeah. about filming after certain hours. So it will be quite often they'll do day for night filming, and it never quite looks right. No. So, 
what have we learnt from five have a mystery to solve? Toads do get old, but not a hundred. They certainly age, but not quite that much. Mm. How about that dogs can choke on golf balls? Yes, which is a terrifying (laughs) thought. It's one other thing to worry about. Yeah. Well, obviously, the thing which I have learned, which is what I knew all along, is do not fall asleep in the broad (laughs) uh, daylight. And also, the other thing that I've learned is that if people are just um, collecting treasures from a house, it does not mean that they're doing anything criminal. So just let, let them be. Yeah, true. You don't have to send them to prison on the police boat. I've learned that no one remembers the time that Anne fought off two grown men with guns single-handedly and Timmy helped. Yeah, if we're going to talk about the tiger, then it's not like this is the first time we've seen it. <laughs> and uh, the best word in the English language is holidays. I can agree And with it that. is the famous five because they have 46 a year. <laughs> <laughs> They do, yeah, they do. I thought they'd be used to it by now, wouldn't they? I would have thought so. So, who is the hero of the book, do I even need to ask? It's Anne, of course it's Anne. Well, as a... Introducing Anne, (laughs) the tiger, Kieran. (laughs) Yeah, she was definitely... She was the best character. And this this is the best Anne as well that we've seen as well. Yes. This is the best Anne. <laughs> this is the best version oh. of Anne of all the of yeah. all the books because it feels like she has actually found her voice a bit more, mm. and yeah. and she's like, um, and we do see we do see a lot of the stuff which is like the cliche Anne stuff. She does love cooking and cleaning, but at the same time, she is kind of ferocious and she she has this sort of inner strength. Behind yeah. her, which unfortunately we haven't seen in the previous books, because usually she is just the kind of like the cowardly child who is dragged along into the adventures. Um, but this time around, she actually seemed like she was like a willing participant, and I like the fact that she was the one who pointed out that they could escape from the locked room through the well, and mm. nobody else had picked up yeah. on that. And it was nice actually seeing that. Oh yeah, she has. She's got smarts as well. So go Anne. What can we expect next time, apart from the true ending of the series? Uh, Mr. Wu, a familiar face, and the end to our adventure. Oh, A familiar face. At the window? Or... <laughs> it's, a, it's a face at the window is always familiar. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to be revealed where the familiar face will appear. Oh, uh... I can't believe it's our last book. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it is astonishing. You've managed to do all, well, you will have managed to to do all 21 of them. That is uh, quite something. Yeah, I feel a massive sense of pride. Well, you should do. It is, you know, it is, um, I've completely lost the words (laughs) for what it is, but but it is, it's impressive at least that you managed to to make it to the end. (laughs) Uh, because Enid Blyton barely did. <laughs> she, <laughs> she gave up oh, books. <laughs> oh dear. So with that in mind, and it being our final book next time, you can just about find us on Twitter at Famous Five Pod. And you can email us and you should email Don't us. Don't make me beg. Let us know favourite <laughs> characters, favourite books. 
anything, don't make Katie beg, <laughs> that is famous5pod at gmail.com. And I think around about the time that this uh, podcast episode comes out, I will have published my follow-up book to Weird Bristol, which is called More Weird Bristol. <laughs> and it should be oh. uh, available just in time for Christmas. And it's just, as you would imagine, more interesting stuff about the lovely city of Bristol. And you know what, Charlie? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that sounded unnecessarily aggressive. It's actually a compliment. <laughs> I'm going to compliment you aggressively. Are you ready? Okay. I don't live anywhere near Bristol. I've been to one train station, but I follow with Bristol on Instagram and it is fascinating. So well done. Thank you very much. I don't know why I'm being aggressive. I'm sorry. <laughs> so well done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, no, it's genuinely interesting just from a historical angle. It, you don't have to be familiar with Bristol. I love history and I love little obscure things and that's that's kind of what I wanted it to be to be a move like where how you can walk around a place and know it very well but then you suddenly realize like what is that odd thing on that building Mm. or what why is this thing like it is why is this street name like it is and I think that's kind of it's interesting obviously if you live there but that kind of curiosity is um boundless (laughs) you know it can be it can (laughs) just be interesting learning things about things, places where you've never even been before. But thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Uh, I think we have to say goodbye to the madness that was Five Have a Mystery to Solve. (laughs) And a final goodbye, even though we've actually said a final goodbye to you. So actually, it's not a final goodbye. And a goodbye to you, but perhaps, Charlie, you might pop up. I would like to. I would like to see what what um, future projects I could uh, perhaps get involved in. Yes. Yeah, so oh, if you're... I was I was actually thinking of our roundup episode, but yes. All right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> future projects. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's all say goodbye and end this madness. Goodbye and thank you again, Charlie, for yeah, thank joining you. us. I it's well, so in much the, fun with you. In the manner of Enid Blyton in this book, it's been a grand adventure. It has. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. No, good <laughs> grief. No, bye, everybody. Time. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Famous Five podcast. And please join us next month for more adventures. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>